guest today is William Kerr. He is a professor at the Harvard Business School, co-director of Harvard's Managing the Future of Work initiative, and the author of the new book, The Gift of Global Talent, which he joins the show to talk about today. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, I would think that a book about the value of bringing very talented people to your country uh, would not be controversial. Uh, I would think it'd be like writing a book about baseball saying, you know, the gift of bringing really good free agents to your baseball team. People would assume, yeah, of course, there's a there's a tremendous value that you should try to do that. That is good. But yet I think this book is probably more would be in many sections would be somewhat controversial that they don't think global talent is necessarily a gift. So I kind of want to talk about that. But before we even do that, we should make sure we know what we're talking about. When you talk about global talent, what are you what do you specifically mean? Exactly. Uh, let me begin with the, uh, 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 the global talent is the movement of highly skilled individuals around the world to places where they can uh, have their talents put to the best use. That can be in the form of uh, early education. Uh, it can be then the first jobs people are taking, where they're starting their companies or you know the inventions that, uh, that migrants uh, have brought to the United States and, and to other countries. So it's not a particular uh, educational definition because a lot of times contributions can come uh, from people that have bachelor's degrees versus PhDs, but thinking more about uh, how the movement of talented people around the world has most influenced our economy uh, and then also the world at large. Right. So um, we're talking for sure about Nobel Prize winning physicists, right? That's uh, one, one of the groups we look at are the Nobel Prize winners. All right. Now, because you, you do, because you do in in the book, sort of, uh, you do categorize a little bit. I know the Nobel Prize. What are some of the other categories of, of talent that you're yeah. looking at? Well, let, let me begin with the one of the unfortunate uh, positions we find ourselves in from a data perspective is that while we live in a knowledge economy, our understanding of the movement of of knowledge workers in the plains uh, around the world is much less than the movement of physical goods that are observed in cargo boats. So we would love to be able to look at this at, in a, a truly comprehensive framework, but instead what we often have to do is piece together sort of glimpses of it from, from different angles. Uh, at the highest level, uh, Nobel Prize winners, Fields Medals, prestigious awards are often an, an easy place to, to pick out that superstar dimension. Uh, you can come down uh, to the level of inventors uh, and entrepreneurs are often a place where we can assemble some data that are about the the origin of people and, and these particular contributions that they're making to the economy. Uh, and those data are digitized and very well collected. Then you get into more broad uh, things that like the census would measure. This can be, uh, for example, the college-educated workforce uh, in the country. Uh, and then you can look at student records uh, and similar. So you're trying to come at this from a, a from several angles. And the, the fortunate uh, outcome of this is that even though each of these is taking a different slice of the whole, all the directions point in, in the same way. So when we talk about the United States as having been 
held a very special position for receiving global talent. That's true from the Nobel Prize winners to the students that are in the classrooms. It's more a difference of degree often, but not in the direction of the finding. And that gives us confidence to then take this to, uh, to uh, coming up with a set of regularities that can inform our discussions. Right. And let's describe the gift. Why, why is it a gift to the United States and how has it been a gift in the past? Well, the first is, why is it a gift to the world? Uh, and I would argue Good. that the, the ability to match people to the places where their talents can be best utilized, where their passions can be uh, most uh, uh, kind of, in, you know, kind of taken to the next level, where they can uh, have the greatest influence is something that can benefit all of us. When you think about the, the development of skilled work and its applications, it's not a zero-sum game for the world, but instead one that we can all be, be better off as people are matched to the best places to utilize those talents. There's a second level of this, which is the particular gift to the United States. And this comes from the enormous degree to which our country has, has received foreign talent. Uh, a third of our Nobel Prize winners have come from abroad. Uh, when you look at uh, science and engineering, we often think about a quarter, 25 percent of uh, the talent in the country is foreign born. Uh, and then you think about, like, is this different from the rest? The answer is, well, absolutely. Uh, uh, just taking the inventor and continuing on that one. About 57% of uh, migrating inventors have come to the United States. So it's been a, a very particular uh, gift to the United States, but it's also something that, that benefits the world as a whole. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to get into this later, but just since you mentioned it, the idea that it benefits the world as a whole. You know, one, one criticism of thinking like this and thinking that, at least as Americans, that we should, you know, really try to attract, you know, the smartest, most capable people to, to come and live and work here is that you're taking something away. Yeah, the countries where these people leave, and those are countries. You know, certainly, in the case of India and China, uh, which have very large economies, but certainly on a per capita basis, they're much poorer than the United States. You're, so you're so, so we are in fact stealing the best and brightest from these other countries, and 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 some people point that as you know that's it's it's immoral, it's wrong. You're you're retarding the the the, the progress uh, of those of those countries. Uh, again, why why do you see that argument as being you know uh, wrongheaded? Well, this framing has been classically called the brain drain argument. And the idea is that once somebody uh, has migrated from India or from uh, Mexico or from Germany to the United States, uh, that that somehow is depriving that country of the benefits that that talent would have would have accrued. And I want to begin by highlighting or, or, or saying that there are certainly cases where brain drain holds. Uh, in smaller, more isolated uh, countries or environments, you can have that when somebody goes abroad, that's less talent that was, was at home. Uh, but there are two sort of pieces that we need to add into that before we start to have a full view. Uh, first is the migration itself can often unlock talents that would not have otherwise been unlocked due to stronger educational systems or due to better opportunities uh, uh, to make an impact to one's career. There are often the cases of matching people with the best places that can generate some extra surplus for all of us. And then a lot of times when we think about how technology diffuses around the world or how new ideas spread or how business relationships get formed, they sit on top of networks. And a sort of an overseas community or what's sometimes called a diaspora 
of a country can really help unlock its access to the business and scientific frontier uh, in, in cases where that you know that the, the country is of a size and is interestingly uh, is of interest enough to, to make that connection worthwhile. So the book is, tries to go through and think about settings where the brain drain story holds, and then also settings where other forms, sometimes called brain gain or brain circulation, there's been various uh, sort of hijackings of the metaphor where those opportunities are instead uh, taking root. Hey, I, and I guess uh, you know I, w- I would also add that it's not the case that if, in, in the case of an entrepreneur, that he creates some sort of amazing business, you know, let's say we had, you know, you know Sergey Brin uh, was born in Russia, came to this country, you know, uh, co-founded uh, Google, that all the gains from from Google have not been captured from by Sergey Brin. It's been, it, most of those gains have been captured by the, re- you know, everybody in the rest of the world who's benefited, you know, from that technology. Uh, absolutely. And the more that we have the seven plus billion people around the world helping to uh, you know, helping to make our world a better place, that is going to be a benefit to all of us, whether it's in the form of creating a better search engine or finding uh, the next cure for cancer or or the many other applications that that we observe. And unfortunately, it's the, the opportunity to do that type of work is not evenly distributed around the world. And that's why the global talent flows and the particular way that they can interact with what environments offer uh, can make us better off. And then you get into a question of, okay, the world can be better off, but is the sending country itself better off? And that's where you need to have this extra kind of kicker on top to say that it will, it will make the difference for Korea if one of, their, uh, one of their talented young people comes to the United States. If they are able to somehow, for Korea, make some extra connection uh, as a consequence of this. So the world gets better off, and then Korea itself also would have the incentive uh, for, this, uh, for this tie. Shifting to the United States, certainly one way of describing you know, American exceptionalism is that we've been an exceptional destination uh, for for global talent, and we've we've had a huge advantage. People have wanted to come here. Very smart, talented people have wanted to come here, but the, but that advantage is going to sort of wane. It's a more competitive world. I mean, that's certainly what you see, right? It's definitely the case that uh, in. Uh, the mid of the 20th century uh, and even up until perhaps like 15, 20 years ago, the United States was in a, a truly unrivaled place in terms of attracting in global talent. There have been a number of uh, factors over the last uh, couple of uh, decades that have started to uh, erode that advantage. Simply, uh, some countries have become much more economically developed during this period, and that makes it uh, it, it more interesting for a migrant to possibly return home after they've done their studies. Uh, a number of economies are growing very rapidly uh, and have very large markets, uh, and that makes it interesting for entrepreneurs to go back and start their businesses. Foreign universities have started to uh, to take root, and also some countries have been very aggressive in trying to uh, provide a, a package or some incentives uh, to, to bring talented people uh, uh, home. So the United States... Uh, still to this day remains the, the 
the undisputed leader, I think, in attracting global talent. And the surveys and some of the Gallup polls and others that, that have conducted often point to a majority of people would migrate to the United States uh, if given the opportunity uh, to do so, um, among those that want to migrate. Uh, but we are, we're starting to see much more competition uh, for that talent. Right. So sort of, you know, America's national advantages uh, being eroded as the rest of the world, thankfully, sort of develops and yeah, it, advances. But yet yeah, still a very popular destination. So to what extent should we be be concerned as Americans that that, that edge will erode significantly and have an you know, economic impact on the United States? I think I want to begin with the first part you said, which is the development of other countries around the world is something that we should celebrate. And the, the go back to our the what we talked about earlier. The more I'm not sure we, everybody believes that, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm I'm going to argue it for, uh, for for now. And go back. The more we have people that are able to um, uh, to to build the on our knowledge base and help our our world grow. Uh, and for me, that's that's fantastic. Yes, the United States does get something special though. And I worry about the, the, the erosion or the loss of, of, of that sort of special position. Uh, it, it, yeah, you get as equal controversy about the dollar being the res- world's reserve currency. There are some special things that the United States could, could uh, obtain by, by having that, that role. But you know, take something like invention. Uh, in 1975, about one out of every 12 inventors in America was foreign-born. And today, that number is about one out of every three and a half. And this has been across many technology fields, but uh, especially prominent in advanced technologies. And that's been something that has unlocked new forms of work, helped make our, com- our companies more competitive in global markets, uh, and helped in- enrich our lives. So I would, I would deeply uh, uh, fear the loss of that special position and how it's helped uh, k- keep us the dynamic innovative frontier. Well, well, let me sort of ask a question a different way. So, so if we, so if we assume that all the gains from innovation don't go to the innovator and they spread to other countries, does it really matter if an, if the innovation takes place in Silicon Valley or in China or in Germany, if eventually we, we will benefit our businesses and consumers will benefit, you know, from those innovations. Does it, should we really be that focused on it happening here in the United States? I think yes, for for several reasons. First, you, you have already highlighted the diffusion aspect, that it will get uh, to other places around the world. And of course, we can now say the light bulb is widely used all around the world, and it, we don't quite have to place where exactly it emerged from. But in you know the this the span of 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 years even uh, uh, in the span of business cycles and so forth uh, being the place where the first ideas are emerging where you're creating the new industry that's going to operate for the ideas let's think about like electric vehicles or autonomous uh, driving and so forth being the place that you're able to 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 catalyze that uh, new discovery and how it's going to be applied into uh, into industries and for consumers creates uh, some of the very best opportunities for companies to to really establish themselves uh, and to uh, to be able to to offer great jobs to people. So there's the there's that. Diff- 
confusion aspect and then kind of, you know, we, we all look ahead and the future of work it has a lot of questions for it. Uh, you know, what, what kind of jobs are going to be there? What occupations? We all say that, you know, some of the jobs today are going to go away, but there's going to be new jobs that, that will emerge. You know, I kind of think that where those new jobs are most likely to be emerging are, are around the places where you're conducting this innovation uh, and where you're creating sort of the, the, the cluster that people really want to be a part of and that's pushing that, that frontier uh, forward. Could you spend maybe a minute talking about, about clustering and why that's important? Yeah, so I, I, we can start with, you know, why is it important? Well, if you ask a, a young finance graduate, you know, like where do they want to go? They're going to give you a handful of uh, cities like New York or, or, or London or elsewhere. Uh, if you ask an aspiring actress where she wants to go, the you know, short list will include all. What you find are these places where uh, a city uh, and a region surrounding it have become very specialized in the production of, uh, of, of a good, of, of a product, uh, be it a, a financial product or a, or a Hollywood movie. And we're seeing this uh, has a, a particular strength in today's economy, uh, in part because we've got greater integration of some of the markets. Uh, and so my ability to sell around the world uh, the product of a Hollywood movie or a financial uh, product uh, heightens the, the returns for the innovation. And second, we increasingly see organization of work such that when we're making the movies or when we're developing the startup company in Silicon Valley, what matters are talented people coming together. Uh, and that creates a, a, a place where once somewhere, somewhere takes root as being the leading cluster of a space or among the two or three leading clusters of a space, it becomes very attractive for the people that want to do that in the future to also go there. Right, so we uh, we want it, we as an American, I you know, you know patriotic. I want that cluster and that new technology uh, to be in the uh, be in the United States. You know, um, absolutely, and, and I think we have to recognize that we will always have some clusters that will exist outside the United States, whether it is uh, the other financial financial centers in the world or whether it is the, uh, you know, the, the startup community that's emerging in Shanghai and in Berlin. But what's important is that we need to make sure that we have strong clusters ourselves because the more we're at that leadership, the more we'll also participate and be first to observe and to, uh, to bring in some of the, the stuff that's happening outside of the country as well. So it's, it's about what we're able to create it's also our ability to hear, absorb, and learn, and bring in the things that are happening elsewhere. For sure. And uh, I probably should have asked you this uh, question number two. But again, we're talking about uh, talent. These by sort of your rough definition of what, uh, what would fit in that category. How many, quote, unquote, talented people are coming to the United States every year? That's a, it's a great question. Um, the... It's it's a difficult one because of course you have temporary migration coming in, uh, as well as as more permanent migration that is uh, is developing. I think it's probably easier for me to break it down in, mm -hmm. into some of the, the some of the categories. So we have like a uh, roughly a million foreign students that are coming uh, to the country every year. Um, about a quarter of our in, uh, science and engineering workforce uh, is uh, is foreign born. Uh, that number is. Uh, you know, it depending upon the exact zone or definition that you want to create could go from, say, three million up to, to eight million uh, people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have sort of more broad and, and diffuse uh, 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 groups that 
that would also touch upon this. And uh, is there a is there a, a a large pool out there that we're not already getting that with better policy we could get? There is a. This goes back to our earlier conversation that in part talented migration also includes the often the education aspect. So there will be when you think about what exists abroad, there's both people that have that have been trained and are ready to, to get to work. There's also going to be the people that would like to be a part of a, uh, of a leading university become educated and then uh, and then launch their launch their work on, on both dimensions uh, there is uh, there's certainly supply that exists out uh, in the world if we wanted to open up uh, um, uh, open up to, to, to greater uh, skilled migration in this front some of that would would almost uh, certainly come from the reallocation of people that are currently going elsewhere towards the United States uh, but there would also be some opportunity for uh, for going uh, uh, further into into uh, into new groups that would that would want to become uh, in, incorporated. I mean, the supply that potential supply is sort of increasing. I mean, there's I mean, Chinese universities are graduating lots of places. I mean, they're sending students here. You have other. You have probably greater emphasis on on sort of the more the technology occupations of other countries. So that that potential supply is probably incre- increasing beyond population growth, I would imagine. Yes. I mean, one of the biggest things that's happened uh, over the last two decades, uh, it, in particular, but starts a little bit earlier, has been, uh, especially China and India, uh, but other uh, large countries, uh, Brazil, Turkey, etc., that have hit stages where their economic development has, uh, has brought forth uh, a lot of young talent. They've also reached points where the families are wealthy enough that they're willing to send their kids abroad for study or for work, uh, and that they've also hit a point where multinational companies and entrepreneurs around the world are saying, that's a market that I want to be a part of. So I think all those things are helping to uh, to push forward this sort of talent level that's coming up. Um, as I sort of alluded to in uh, in the opening, this may seem, and it certainly seems to me like an obvious thing you should try to do if you're a policymaker is to, you know, keep that sort of flow of international talent uh, coming. But you don't have to do too much Google searching to find a lot of folks don't think that, uh, that there's arguments that this this is not the way to go, that this is just about bringing in replacements for U.S. workers, We that we, we generate plenty of talent here domestically. We generate more computer science majors than we can use, that you don't see the sort of rising wages uh, in IT that you would expect to see if there was a if there was a shortage, that this is really about companies just not wanting to pay workers. I'm sure you've run, aclo- run across some of these arguments. And so how do you respond? Is does is, does the U.S. economy need this sort of immig- sort of immigration uh, to move forward, and that we're just not getting it, and we just can't, you know, throw up the uh, throw up the walls and use our domestic talent better? I think it, I think you've hit in, in a variety of different ways uh, several important topics. I, I want to uh, save the beginning uh, until the end and start with. Uh, does the U.S. want more talent? Does it need more talent? Should it incorporate? My answer to that is is yes. This is one of the things that really helped make our nation uh, what it is. Uh, it has been a uh, 
vitally important for our science and engineering development, for our business success, for the universities that we've created and now can provide to the world. And it would be a, a shame to lose that, that edge and that, that opportunity. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not challenges. Uh, and that's what your Google searches were, were highlighting is that there are some, uh, some workers that can get hurt. Uh, and the book spends a lot of time trying to understand why older tech workers in particular can, can feel strains uh, that come from, from global talent flows. Likewise, uh, there are, is an increasing issue of inequality in the country uh, and also inequality within the talent clusters themselves. And that is bubbling over uh, in, in, in very important ways, uh, both differences across states as well as also uh, very local differences across, across neighborhoods. And one of the places I want to then go is to say, all right, we don't have, even for the admissions that we're making, the, the best system. It, it's it's going to be controversial, uh, even for for high skilled migration or uh, employment based migration. It's all, it's going to be controversial to say we should increase the admissions up, you know, or you know, some might even argue we should we should decrease the admissions as you're highlighting. But what I, I would hope we could at least come to some agreement is that for the level of admissions that we're making, America currently has a very crude policy structure. Uh, the H-1B system and the lottery features that it uses and, and other ways that we're really not selecting the very best opportunities, the very best talent uh, to admit. And so why don't we start by making that better? All right. And then, and then okay. from there, I think we can actually go and, and find something that Republicans and Democrats and, um, you know, people of, of rich and poor backgrounds and all across the country, we can start to have that unanimous uh, agreement that you are describing, uh, that that this seems like a no-brainer, but I think one of the things we have to first do is make sure our policy structure is providing that, that high-fidelity talent, uh, and then it becomes much more of a no-brainer for the country. All right. So, the, so, the, so sort of the crucial mechanism um, to get that talent here is that visa system. So why don't you tell me what needs to change? Well, I want to I actually say there, I think there's two crucial things. Okay. There's, there's the mechanism, uh, and let's spend some time on that. Increasingly, the, one of the bigger issues is just the rhetoric around immigration in the United States. Uh, and that's not, a, that's not tied to a specific policy mechanism, but people all around the world are kind of looking at the United States and saying, I'm not so certain I, I want to make my bets there. I'm not so certain I want to make those investments there. So that that has also become a, a, a bigger challenge for us. So, I mean, do, but do you think that's a real thing? Do you think that people, that, that someone wants to come to the United States and sees all the opportunities, the universities, Silicon Valley, that in a meaningful way that you would see talent dissuaded from coming here because of the perception that the U.S. has become less welcoming? To, uh, uh, to to immigrants that that would that that would really be sort of uh, a, a decision altering sort of consideration. Uh, yes, and the decision first uh, is one of uh, I think of high skilled talent flows is always about investment. So if you are trying to decide where to go to school, oftentimes what you're thinking about is after I graduate from this school, I'll have this type of job opportunity. Or if you're trying to decide where should I start my business, you're trying to think about like how can I grow and develop it. it, it it's it's much like an investment decision that a, a company would make in, in terms of building a new plan. And the one thing we know that is most detrimental uh, to investment uh, is uncertainty. 
Uh, if you're trying to think about long-term horizons, if it's a very volatile and uncertain place, we all pull back, whether that's our choice to buy a house or whether it's the choice to open the chemical plant or whether it's the choice to choose this particular undergraduate program versus one that would be, would be elsewhere. That investment is and uncertainty is one that I that is the most direct way or the most direct channel through which uh, the rhetoric or the, the you know kind of the the worries about this being an important place uh, a place you want to make your bets uh, comes through. Now, do we have evidence around that? Uh, we we have some signals uh, or some some examples. Uh, business schools are are one place that this has become uh, has become visible. Uh, applications from foreign students are down about 11% uh, this last year, uh, and that compares to about 2% from domestic students. And in the surveys of, of the foreign students, and, and why did you choose or not choose to apply to a U.S. school, uh, the, the immigration uh, uh, rhetoric and environment is something that, that comes, to the, uh, comes out. So we're, we're picking up uh, some mm -hmm. of the signals uh, that this does affect uh, the the choices people are making because they look ahead and say I'm I'm worried about this future environment. No, I think you're probably right. Okay, so uh, and what about policy? Yeah, so on, on the policy side, uh, let me just isolate one uh, uh, feature to pick up. We have a, a, a the H1B system is is the largest of the of the employment based migrations. It's used for uh, people that have a uh, a bachelor's degree above doing a, a skilled or, or specialty occupation. A lot of this goes to computer science and similar. We, we every April 1st is the start of the H-1B visa season. And combining two categories together, we have about 85,000 slots that we, uh, that we, uh, that we fill every year. And every year, uh, uh, with the exception of a couple that happened during the, the Great Recession, we have gotten uh, well in excess of the 85,000 almost immediately. Uh, and the policy of the government is to, um, to hold open the application process for about five days uh, in April uh, and then uh, kind of see, okay, how many do we get? Last year, we got a, a little over 190,000 applications for the 85,000 slots uh, during those five days. And then what we do is we use a lottery to pick among those applications. And one of the challenges of the lottery is, is that that's very, um, very crude way of selecting. You have some people in these applications that will be doing artificial intelligence research. Uh, and you're giving them the same, you know, shots on goal as someone that is doing uh, code testing for, for an outsourcing company. Right. Uh, and, and we, we, we don't differentiate across those. It's even like, imagine if you're a Microsoft, you're usually putting uh, several thousand applications in. So the law of large numbers is going to mean that you're basically going to get, you know, roughly a third of your applications uh, approved. But you don't even get to pick which one third of your candidates uh, you most want to employ. It's done, the, the lottery's done at, at the individual level. So this is just a, a very inefficient system, and then people have to go back, and, and uh, students uh, or, or people that have come out on, on what's called an OPT program, they may try the lottery two or three times uh, and be getting to a desperate spot trying to, to, you know, to, get, uh, to get a position uh, or an employment visa in, into the country. So I, I propose in the book uh, one, 
way of, of trying to, to bring greater structure or prioritization uh, using wage ranking. So we would start with the applicant that receives the highest uh, uh, wage um, uh, that, they're, that, that they'll be paid and then sort of work our way down uh, the list. So we're using signals from the labor market to say this is a more valuable use of the visa versus others. There's a lot of red, you know, fine print that has to be brought in. A lot of let's make sure that expensive coastal cities or the finance industry don't gobble up all the visas. Right. Let, sure. me, let, me, let me put those things aside. But just trying to say that's that's not something where I, we're saying let's you know triple the number of visas. We're just saying let's you know we'll start with even keep would the visa. You, but, would, the but would you like to triple the number of visas? Even though that's not what you're calling for at the very well, moment. I mean, no, no, should I, we I, double I, or triple? I mean. I think we should we should be thinking about increases uh, of that magnitude, uh, but I'd also want to tie it to doing it in a in a better way, uh, right. and and kind of think of the whole the whole setup. And I kind of go through some opinion polls, and I'm not a you know I'm not a political scientist here, but but you can see differences where people are uh, three to one, usually uh, supportive of increasing high skilled migration to the country. But when you ask them about the H-1B visa program, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of equal. I think maybe uh, we should make it a little bit smaller. Maybe we should make it bigger. And I, I kind of say that or believe that the respondents have a, a pretty fair understanding that the H-1B program isn't giving all of the, the bang for the buck or all of the, the best candidates that it could. So if we can make that more, you know, more skills based and more sort of focus on the best case, then I think they're is a lot of room to then say, okay, let's expand the number of visas that are being supplied. Right. And, and what do you think about the, so the, you always hear about it as a possible reform, more of a points-based system where uh, applicants would get certain points depending on, on their skills. I think that's what Canada has. What about that idea, using that as sort of a measure as opposed to more of a, this kind of market sure. measure looking at wages? Well, I think two, two parts of that. One, we've been focused on the employment-based work. Uh, and in that category or in that system, the United States has what's called an employer-driven system, meaning that ra- compared to Canada, what, what we have is a, an individual company sponsoring a migrant and saying, you know, that, that Bill is the, is the person that they want to have in this, in this role. Mm-hmm. That, that's got some very important features to it uh, in terms of uh, guaranteeing a person uh, has a job when they arrive. Firms also have a lot of incentive to screen workers carefully to think about, you know what, a bachelor's degree in data science right now is actually more important than a PhD in nuclear physics. So the firms are able to make those kinds of judgments, think about how creative a person is, how hardworking uh, and similar. And and there's so I, I, I kind of like having a firm in that particular role. But I also, one of the reasons I think is some signals like wage ranking is that we could do better about prioritizing the scarce slots uh, as as firms have helped in that process. So I'd be bringing a little bit more of a, of a, of a points kind of concept uh, into that into that space. There's a broader question, which is uh, we have many ways that migration to the United States happens. Uh, family uh, based migration is the majority of migration. Uh, and then the employment categories that we've talked to are are, are a much smaller uh, uh, subset. And when you hear conversations about points-based structures, a lot of times uh, people are also ha- suggesting fewer uh, family-based uh, migrants coming into the country and a greater allocation towards uh, towards employment-based migration. Mm-hmm. 
And what my sort of kind of point that I'm trying to get to in the book is say we could we could double or triple the amount of employment-based migration into the country, and it would still be a, a, a minority of the total immigration that is happening. So that you once you get into the comprehensive immigration reform that would involve family and employment, you get into if, if the water was already, you know, or it was already muddy and sticky. And right. forth, now you've gotten into an enormously complex uh, uh, space with a lot of uh, uh, political issues on, on both sides. So I go back to the employment base, make it uh, make it larger, but make it more skilled in, in the process. The other sort of high skill thing uh, politicians love to talk about is the idea of, you know, stapling a green card to every science and tech diploma that a university will hand out. You hear that idea pop up. What do you think about that idea? Does it have any merit? I'm very sympathetic to the idea. Uh, and I'm sympathetic because we have many, uh, many graduates that have skills we want to hold on to. And the problem is there's just not enough employment opportunities downstream and not enough visas. In the book, I kind of describe this as imagine we have various pipes of different sizes and this, the graduating student pipe has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, but the H-1B pipe has stayed the same size uh, and the other pipes that are around it. So you have all these sort of workarounds and trying to overcome this, these mismatches that, that are occurring. That said, I, uh, I, I suggest in the book that we not uh, use the staple policy. And my, my principal reason, again, while I'm sympathetic to the argument, what this would be basically allowing is for administrators at universities uh, all across the country to be making permanent migration decisions on behalf of the United States. And I, I have no love of bureaucracy, uh, but I also, the, um, the scope for unintended consequences uh, if we made such a strict tie would be, would be enormous. I, I'm a, a professor. I can only imagine like, you know, the student is one credit short of graduating right. and therefore getting a green card to the country. You know, I, hopefully they would try to bribe me and not blackmail me, but you know, like either way, like they, you, you create a, a whole bunch of pressure there that, I, that it's not worth. So I, in the book, I think we should, we should adopt what some other countries have, which is a guaranteed employment period uh, that would be for any graduate can, you know, uh, make the length a little bit different based upon time in the United States, level of degree, uh, other pieces you want to add on. Uh, and that would be important if you also had the wage ranking, because few students coming out would hit the you know high enough wage scales that they would be picked in, in the uh, in, in a prioritization around wages. So give them some time uh, to launch a career. And then if they're going to, to stay for the long term, they have to be able to uh, work through the employment categories like the H-1B. Yeah. And, and as we wrap up, I know this isn't the subject of the book, but uh, your thoughts about the role of low, lower skilled immigration in the United States. You must have you know, given that a little bit of thought. We tend to focus on, on high skill and, and it's easy to see the benefits, but a lot of people, if they, even if they can see the benefits of high school immigration, they have a problem with low school immigration. Just if you have any thoughts on that. I think low school immigration has been, uh, and uh, let me broaden that out even to just, just broad family-based immigration, has been uh, important for the United States. I don't, uh, the academic evidence suggests this does not hurt American workers uh, and can uh, contribute to the, to the public finances. I'm not 
someone that is uh, is prepared to go uh, to an open borders argument. Uh, I think we have a, a high level of family-based migration coming into the country. And I, I'm going to sort of, at this point, just say, let's keep that uh, structure uh, the way it is uh, and the, the levels of admissions. And I want to more make sure that we can start doing uh, what a number of our peer countries doing, which is being more attractive uh, to the high-skilled migration. We've, we've, we've received a huge benefit of, of global talent, but I often say it has probably been it, you know, in spite of rather than because of our immigration structure. And the more that we can uh, make that into, a, into a, a national asset, I think we have ample opportunity to expand uh, the employment work-based uh, programs that, that we have. My guest today has been William Kerr, author of the must-read new book, The Gift of Global Talent. Bill, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.